Father God, uh, it's remarkable to see women and men who have so very little, who have hope only in the afterlife, and yet they're filled with joy, they're filled with love, they're filled with worship. Father, may their worship, their lives be contagious to us. And Father, may some of the things we were able to share with them about you and about your word, may those be shared with their congregations that they might know you better. And may their contagious love be shared with our congregation that we might love you better. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word from Luke 19, speak to us, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Today we're going to talk about Luke 19. We're going to talk about Jericho, which Deuteronomy 34.3 tells us is the city of Palms. So it's Palm Sunday. I've given you a Palm message. Jericho is a city of vegetables. It's a city of fruit. It's an oasis in the desert. It's quite south. It's on what we call the West Bank. It's the southern, western part of Israel. It's controlled by the Palestinian National Authority. If you were to go there today, you would see grove after grove after grove of fruit trees. And we're in the middle of a desert. The reason is because they have all these springs that bubble up. For instance, the Elisha Spring in Jericho bubbles up 1,000 gallons of beautiful drinkable water every single minute. And there's more than one spring in Jericho. So there's all this water that comes up, making it an incredibly fertile place. And it's this place that our kids were singing about when they sang about Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Now, if you and I were to go to Jericho today, undoubtedly we would take you to see a fig tree, a sycamore, figus sycamorous tree that dates back perhaps to the time of Christ. Now, I can't tell you if that's true or not. I've been to the tree. They tell me it's the one. How they know, I don't know. But you go to this tree, and they grow to about 40 feet, and around it is a large fence, and they have a fence there because they know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to go up, and we're going to take a piece of bark, or we're going to take a fig, and we're going to bring them home so that we would have a piece of bark or a fig tree from Zacchaeus's tree. So they don't let you do that. Well, it's the Middle East. Everything's negotiable. Because inside the fence is a man. And if you have a few shekels, he will give you a piece of bark. Now that dude has been giving pieces of bark to group after group after group for like several decades and the tree still looks healthy. You put it all together. Maybe the bark doesn't come from the tree. I'm not sure. So we've talked a little bit about Jericho. We've talked about the, the tree. We've heard the kids singing. Let's read the text. I want to pick up in Luke 19. We'll read verses 1 to 10. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. 
And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was of small stature. Now, the Greek actually reads, he was of a proportional body, as all small people are. Verse 4. I'm just telling you the truth. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if, it's a conditional statement, it really actually means I have. I have defrauded anyone, and I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As Jesus strolls into Jericho, he comes across a tax collector. Notice what kind of tax collector. Verse 2, he's a chief tax collector. That tells us something rather significant. In first century Israel, in the time of Christ, there were exactly three chief tax collectors. There's one in Jerusalem down south. There's one in Jericho down south and west. And there's one up north in Capernaum. I can't tell you how disliked these individuals are. They are Jews wearing a Roman uniform, collecting taxes for Rome. Rome would require every year that a chief tax collector give them a certain amount of money, everything made above that, the chief tax collector got. These individuals were mean, they were cruel, they often used force, they squeezed blood out of a turnip, they extorted people. They overcharged. This is not a good guy. I think it's safe to say that in the first century, among the five most hated people in Israel, three of them would be tax collectors. The fourth would be the Roman Caesar Tiberius, and the fifth would be Herod, the puppet king who serves Rome. These would be the five most hated individuals in all of Israel. So Zacchaeus is hated and he is rich. He's rich because he extorts others. Now we know something about this man who Zacchaeus admires, this, this man named Jesus. But the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why would an irreligious man, a man far from God, a man who shows no signs of being spiritual, why would he have any interest in Jesus when Jesus strolls through Jericho, when Jesus is passing through Jericho? He's just a rabbi. Who cares about him? Why this interest in Jesus? It's conjecture on my part, but I think it probably is true. I think he has interest because of a man named Levi. You remember Levi, let me pick up in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. 
After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector. He's up north. This is a chief tax collector. He's in Capernaum. This is one of those three guys. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Think about what Levi did. He's a Jew wearing a Roman uniform. If he stops working for Rome, what's the chances that any Jew will ever hire Levi? Zero. If he leaves his post, he takes off his Roman uniform, he abandons his job, what's the chances that Rome will ever hire him back? Zero. So if he walks away from this tax booth, if he walks after Jesus, he has destroyed his future. <coughs> a Jew won't hire him. A Roman won't hire him. Nobody will hire him. And yet Levi sees something in Jesus. And when Jesus says, follow me, he gives up his future and he follows after Jesus. Now, how many of these guys are in Israel? Three. Jews hate all three of them. Jews won't associate with these three men. Romans hate all three of them. They work for Romans, but Romans are nationalists, and Romans have great disdain for traitors, and these three Jews are traitors. So Jews won't hang with these three. Romans won't hang with these three. Who will hang with them? One another. The high likelihood is that these three men not only know the scuttlebutt about one another, they probably tipped a few root beers in the tavern together. They probably vacationed together. They probably know life together. And so when Levi gives up everything, he gives up his future, he gives up a very lucrative job, and he leaves and follows after Jesus, Zacchaeus probably not only knows about it, he probably knows Levi. And he's thinking to himself, what would cause Levi to give up all this money? What would cause Levi to leave his job and his future? What is this Jesus like? And so when he hears that Jesus is in town, he thinks to himself, I've got to meet this Jesus. The problem is Zacchaeus is surrounded by a bunch of zebras. And you know who you are. And when proportional people are around zebras, we can't see. And so he runs down the road, which means he hikes up his tunic. He shows his undergarment. He gets to a sycamore tree. He climbs up. They're 40 feet tall. Maybe he only goes 8 or 10 feet. And he looks out, and he's looking for Jesus. And Jesus passes by, and Jesus says, Come down out of the tree, because I'm going to your house today. Now, at this point, let me make a parenthetical remark. Sometimes evangelicals get a little carried away, and we read verse 5, and we say, ah, this is evidence of Jesus' omniscience. He knows all things. Jesus is omniscient. He does know all things. He did veil his divine attributes from time to time while on earth, but we don't need this verse to prove his omniscience. Jesus doesn't look up and say, oh, I know you from eternity past. You're Zacchaeus. He could do that, but he doesn't need to. Everyone knows Zacchaeus' life. Everybody knows his name. 
Now I'm about to make a statement. It is not political. If you hear something political, you didn't listen to me. It's not political. But there are certain individuals from both political parties you've never met, you know their name, and they have high levels of disdain. They have people who love them and people who hate them. We could say President Trump. We could play, say Speaker Ryan. We could say Secretary Clinton. We could say Minority Speaker Pelosi. Or if you follow the NFL, we could say Roger Goodell. Now, you've never met any of these five, right? Probably. But you know them. You know their reputation. That's all that's going on. And I think this is rather important. Jesus knows the reputation of Zacchaeus. And so when he comes into town, if he's got his PR woman with him, I know what the PR woman said. She said, Jesus, we got a couple rules. I want you to understand the rules. First, when the crowds are around, kiss the babies. Second, when the crowds are around, it would be a good time to do one of those miracles. That would be really helpful. And finally, no matter what, do not go to Zacchaeus' house. That is a job killer. Don't go to Zacchaeus' house. But Jesus isn't in the PR business. In fact, verse 10 tells us what business he's in. It says the Son of Man came to save the lost. He came to save people like me. He came to save people like you. That's the business of Jesus. And so regardless of what is politically correct, regardless of what is popular, Jesus came to Zacchaeus' house. And what does the text say? It says some of them grumbled. That's not what it says. It says they all grumbled. In fact, that word grumbled actually has a prefix. It's only found two times in Scripture with this word. It means they super grumbled. They're really ticked off. They're put out. They're annoyed. They are not pleased with Jesus at all. Of all the things Jesus could do, going to Zacchaeus' house is a career-ruining move. It's a public relations disaster. Let's consider Zacchaeus again. He's a Jew wearing a Roman uniform. He extorts. He squeezes blood out of turnips. He's a traitor to his people. He's hated. Is there blood on his hands? Probably indirectly. How many single moms has he come up to and said, you're going to pay your tax bill by the end of the week or you go to jail? And she's got to decide if she pays her tax bill, her children go hungry. How many widows did he extort? Putting them at the edge or probably over the edge between life and death. That's what Zacchaeus is. That's who Zacchaeus is. He's the one that we want nothing to do with, and yet Jesus came, the Son of Man came for sinners. He came for me. He came for you. So Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. And Zacchaeus joyfully obeys. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. 
You see, it wasn't just mere words for Zacchaeus. This was saving faith, and the evidence of saving faith is that there was the beginning of a transformed life. And Zacchaeus says, I will give half that I owe, or half that I own to the poor, and if, which I have defrauded others, I will give them four times. The law only required two. He gave quadruple. He gave four. Deeds in keeping with repentance. Acts 26, verse 20. That's the life of a transformed individual. I want to conclude with three thoughts. First, salvation, real saving faith, comes with life transformation. It might be minuscule. It might be just growing little bit by little bit, but there is transformation. Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, the fruit of the Spirit is doesn't say it ought to be, could be, might be, should be. He said the fruit of the Spirit, if the Spirit is within you, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says when you have your salvation, work it out. That is, begin to be transformed by the Spirit within your, my, our lives. Think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then 10. For by grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so none of us can boast. Salvation is utterly, completely, totally a work of Jesus Christ. It is faith in him. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. It's faith in what Jesus did on the cross that saves us. But then verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why are we created in Christ Jesus? For works. It doesn't say the works brought us to Christ. It says having been in Christ Jesus, we are created for good works. There is transformation in our lives. Jesus was quite concerned about this point. He was quite concerned that individuals would say a sinner's prayer, buy a little fire insurance, not really meaning it, parroting it, and then have some kind of confidence that they're going to heaven when in fact they're not. Listen to what he said in passages like Matthew 7. This is verses 21 to 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We need to be clear. Works never save. Works never add an ounce to our salvation. It's only the finished work of Christ that we believe and receive by faith. But having received him, God then expects us, empowered by his spirit, to have incremental changes becoming more and more and more like Christ. Zacchaeus was saved. Jesus said salvation has come to your house. And the evidence of it is he began to give back to the poor. He began to give those he had defrauded. There was transformation. Deeds leading to repentance. Acts 26, 20. What might deeds leading to repentance look like? 
It's going to be different for me than it is for you. Different for the person sitting next to you than the person behind you. It's different for all of us because God is working in our lives in different ways and different areas. For some here in Wisconsin, it might be about substance abuse. We have a major problem as a state. And we like to say that being buzzed, that's not, that's not really a sin, it is. Being buzzed is losing control of oneself and it's damaging the temple that God has given us. It most certainly is a sin. And maybe what we need to do is stop making excuses and stop blaming our circumstances and if necessary need to get accountability and change and, and transformation in our lives. Deeds in keeping with repentance. For others, it might be immorality or pornography. And we might say, well, there's lots of acceptable sins like these in society. Society just winks at it, but God doesn't. And God tells us that intimacy is between a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. Anything outside of that is sinful. And so deeds in keeping with repentance might have to do with our morality. Maybe it has to do with forgiveness. Maybe there are some sins in our life that we need forgiveness for. Maybe we've been loose with our tongue and slandered and gossiped others and, and we need to ask forgiveness of God and the ones we've offended. Or maybe it's that we need to learn to forgive someone else and stop holding them captive in our lives. Or maybe the deeds in keeping with repentance has to do with our, our work environment. Maybe we're defrauding the person who employs us. We're starting late and leaving early and and taking extended breaks and using our phone for social media when we're supposed to be doing something else. And, and we forget what Paul says, that we are to work heartily under the Lord, not unto men. And, and maybe that's what I need to think about with deeds keeping with repentance. Or maybe it's the priorities of my life, and, and maybe the priorities have squeezed out family, and they've squeezed out time of prayer with God, and they've squeezed out a relationship with the Lord, and I've let other things take priority other than what God has given me as the priority, him first, family second. I don't know what the deeds in keeping with repentance are for you. I'm working on it, what it is for me, and I need to ask God to reveal those things, because remember, Jeremiah 17, 4 says, the heart is deceitful and wicked, who can know it? I need the Lord to illumine my heart that I may see the areas that I need to repent in. Zacchaeus saw the areas that he needed to repent in, and he began to care for the poor, and he began to give back four times to those he defrauded. That's my first observation. The second observation, I'm sure, is politically incorrect, so forgive me. Uh, just in case you're wondering, I, I got it from Pastor Sam, and it's Sam Deloy at HighlandCommunityChurch.com. You can just send it to him. Did you notice what Jesus said? He said, today salvation has come to your home, plural oikos. It's not what I would expect him to say. I would think he would say, today salvation came to you. But he didn't. He said, today's salvation came to your home. I wonder what he meant. I think he meant this. More often than not, as the spiritual walk of the father goes, so will the spiritual walk of the home go. 
I think that's what he meant. You know, there are studies on both sides of the pond, university studies that reveal that the walk of the father has the greatest impact in the home. I know that's politically incorrect. You can be offended, but the studies reveal that. Let me read one such study. This one happened to be in Europe, a country, not a, or a continent, not exactly. Um, it's not even a country or a continent. A place. <laughs> a place that is not exactly religious. The study is entitled, The Council of Europe, Director General III, The Demographic Characteristics of the Linguistic and Religious Groups. What a page-turner. It was done by Drs. Haig and Warner, though we have similar studies in the United States. I'm going to cut to the chase, and I'm going to tell you the results. If mom and dad both go to a God-centered church and seek to live out their faith, between 75 and 80% of their kids will have a similar level of faith. About 40% will equal or exceed mom and dad, and 40% might be a little behind the faith of their parents, but 75 to 80% of kids will embrace that faith. If dad goes to a Bible-centered church and dad seeks to walk with the Lord... Statistically, there is almost no change. Almost no change. If mom goes to a Bible-centered church and seeks to live for the Lord, and dad does not, 2% of the kids will follow after or exceed mom's faith, and about 36% will come close, or about a total of 40% will come similar to mom's faith, about half that of father and mother or dad. You don't have to like the study. You don't have to uh, like the statistics. I don't. But there have been a number of studies that have revealed this. Let's assume for a moment the study's true. What are the implications? Implication number one, men, our relationship with the Lord is not just ours. Our relationship with the Lord impacts the next generation and the generation after that. We need to impact those generations by being the men of God that God calls us to. Implication number two. If you're a God-honoring mother, wife, but your husband does not know Jesus or is not walking with Jesus, I just gave you statistics. God is above statistics. So keep walking, keep praying, trust God for the faith of your kids. God can do exceedingly beyond what any statistic says. And implication number three, if you're going to get married, not only does the Bible tell us in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, 7, 1, to be equally yoked, and not only does that make for probably a smoother marriage, but it increases the likelihood that if God gives you offspring, those offspring will follow after Jesus. Those are serious implications. What did Jesus say to this man? He said, today salvation has come to your house. 
Jesus is not saying that because Zacchaeus, you accepted Christ, everyone in your family is going to accept Christ. He didn't say that. He didn't mean that. But he was implying very strongly that as the man goes, so will the offspring go in the house. We don't have to like that, but statistics back that up over and over and over again. The final implication from the text is this. Nobody would have chosen to share the gospel with Zacchaeus. He's an irreligious man. He's far from God. He's arrogant. There is no evidence from his life that he would be the individual you'd say, you know what, I want to share Jesus with you because you're likely to accept Christ. In fact, he's anything but an easy target, isn't he? He's one of the five most hated men in the nation. He's the last guy I want to share Jesus with. I want to find somebody that's spiritually sensitive. But when I think of connect, connect one another in fellowship with Christ, grow, become part of a small group Bible study, and go share the gospel, I need to remember my job and I need to remember God's. My job is to share the gospel. It's God's job to be responsible for the fruit. And we would never guess that Zacchaeus would come to know Christ. I'm willing to bet that some of the individuals who shared Christ with us would never guess that we would have come to Christ. I'm willing to bet that. We never know where somebody is spiritually. We have relatives, neighbors, friends, co-workers. They might be irreligious, far from the Lord, and yet they might be ripe for the gospel. Zacchaeus was ripe for the gospel. Who in your life, who in my life is ripe for the gospel? It's Holy Week. People are sensitive to the gospel. Who do we know that we can share Christ with this week? Who might be the next Zacchaeus? Let's pray. Father God, I love accounts like Zacchaeus. Sometimes we think of them as kid accounts. Maybe we've treated them that way. But Lord, there's so much to learn from you loving this man and from him coming to Christ and for him having deeds of repentance. May we be like Jesus and may we be like this man in repentance. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.